0: Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the world. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And that's the reading from Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Um, For those of you who are new, I don't know if I've said this yet, but my name's Alex, I'm the minister here at New Life Brisbane, and uh, we're in a series right now. We're walking through the story of Advent, and our, our one goal in this Christmas series is to do this, Adore King Jesus. That's our sole focus, that as we step into the Christmas season... We want to orbit our imagination, not around the things of culture, although some of those things are helpful, like putting up a Christmas tree, right? Um, Or watching a Christmas movie or those kinds of things. We don't want to orbit our imagination around those things, essentially. We want to orbit our imagination around King Jesus. And so we want to invite you to do that through this Christmas series. And that's fitting because one of the things that Christians, we've become kind of fond of saying, is that there's a reason for the season. You know, it sounds kind of cute and nice. We're going to remember the reason for the season. And that's kind of fitting, because at the heart of Christmas is King Jesus. At the heart of the Christian story is King Jesus. One of the speakers um, for the ministry that I used to work for, he'd say, you can't, have, uh, you can't be a Christian without Christ. If you're a Christian without Christ, all you're left with is Ian, and Ian can't help you. <laughs> and he'd always follow up by saying, sorry if your name's Ian. But it's true, there's no such thing as a Christianity without Jesus Christ. Um, and this is a big deal, because not everyone thinks that Jesus even existed. Uh, a few years ago when I was living in the UK, my wife and I, we went out for like a classic Christian coffee date. And we were sitting there, and we had our two books. And what two books do Christians take when they go to the cafe? What's the book? It's like a, it's like a Sunday school answer, you don't have to answer. It's the Bible, right? So here we are, hyper-Christian that is, right? Here we are, we're in a cafe in Oxford, and she's reading the Bible, you know, probably praying in tongues, who knows? (laughs) And I'm sitting there, and the book I had, it's not the Bible, it's actually a book by Richard Dawkins, it's called The God Delusion. Classic Christian coffee date, right? And in this book, Richard Dawkins, who's famously known as one of the new atheists, he sort of makes this case that Christianity is delusional, that there's no evidence that um, the Christian story is reliable, and that there's no real evidence that Jesus is indeed a historically real figure. And he sort of compares in this book uh, two two books, the Da Vinci Code and the Gospels. And he says the only difference between the Da Vinci Code and the Gospels is they're both fiction, but one's ancient and one's modern. And he has this line here, and he says this about Jesus. He says it's even possible to mount a serious, though not widely supported, historical case that Jesus never lived at all. What's he saying? He's saying that Christianity is a delusion and that there's no, there's no real evidence um, that could convince you that it's reliable. Now, that's a, that's a big claim. That's a huge claim. And maybe you're here this afternoon, and you're not a Christian, and you're like, well, does it really matter if Jesus existed? Does it really matter even if he was a historical figure? And I want to say, actually, to all of us, both Christian in the room and non-Christian, that it's a pretty serious question to consider whether Jesus was a real historical figure. And here's why. Um, In 2013, Cambridge University Press, they published a book called Who's Bigger? And two computer scientists got together, put together an algorithm, and they sought to figure out who was the most influential person in history. And they ranked, like, some 500 people. And it was an objective uh, metric, and these two people weren't Christians. And here's what they figured out. They figured out, that with this algorithm, the most influential person in all of human history is Jesus of Nazareth. Fascinating. And the question is, why? Why would Jesus be the most influential figure in all of history, culturally, socially, educationally, intellectually, philosophically, morally, ethically, why? Let me read to you the words of a guy named Philip Schaff, a 20th century Swiss German theologian who was reflecting on the significance of Jesus. Last quote for a while, I promise, but he said this. Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet without writing a single line. He set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. What's he saying? He's saying that Jesus literally changed the world. Jesus literally changed the world. And you don't have to be a Christian to see that. You just need to look at history. The question of Jesus' realness of his historical reliability, is a question not just for Christians, but for all of culture, because of the influence that this man had. But maybe you are a Christian. And here's the thing, if if the atheists are right, if the handful of atheists that make this claim, because not all do, interestingly, if the atheists are right, it's not just that the Christmas story is a hoax, it's that the entire edifice of Christianity itself is weird. Think about it. Christianity would be the most absurd way of life if Jesus wasn't real. Like, have you, have you examined the claims and the teaching of Jesus? He said, love your enemies. What? That makes no sense unless it comes from the injunction in the mouth of the very God in flesh that we worship. He said, pray for those who persecute you. He said, think of your life. He didn't actually say this word for word, but think of your life as an apprenticeship unto him. Christianity makes no sense unless Jesus was real and Jesus was who he said he was. I don't know if you you see that. Or think about church itself, not just Christianity, but church itself. If God's not real, and Jesus isn't who he said he was, church is weird. This gathering is the weirdest hobby. It makes no sense, right? If God's not real, and Jesus isn't who he said he was, then all we're doing on a Sunday is we're singing some off-key karaoke songs, and listening to a wannabe try and give a TED talk. That's what Sunday amounts to in terms of its mechanics. But if God's real, and Jesus is who he said he was, it changes everything. And so here's the question. What evidence is there that shows us that Jesus himself was real, and that he was who he said he was? This afternoon, I just wanna unpack a few reasons. A few reasons why the story that we center ourselves around it at Christmas time is reliable. Four reasons and one little point of application. And as I share, why don't we just take 30 seconds and just center our hearts and minds? Because this runs the risk of being a bit more dense. But I want you to think as we're going along this afternoon. How does this change me? How does this change my life? How does this change reality? If it's true. And so just take 30 seconds and quiet of your own heart. God, thank you that when you saw our need for a saviour, you didn't give us a system of ideas. You didn't give us a self-help program. You gave us a person, and his name is Jesus. We centre our hearts around King Jesus right now, Lord, and ask that you'd help us think well, love well, and encounter you. In Jesus' name, amen. So four brief reasons why the story of Jesus is historically reliable. The first one is this, that non-Christian sources affirm the same outline of Jesus' story as the Gospels. this is a big point, just think about this for a second. Non-Christian sources from the ancient world affirm the same basic outlines of the life of Jesus. Uh, For example, there's a guy named Mara Bar Serapion. he was a Stoic, he was writing around 75 AD, 30 years after the life of Jesus, and he made claims about Jesus, himself not being a Christian, he made claims like Jesus was a king, Jesus was a martyr, and Jesus was a teacher. There was another historian, a Roman guy by the name of Tacitus. He's writing in 115 AD, and he confirms that the crucifixion of Jesus happened under the rule and reign of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And there's another guy, a Jew named Josephus. He was in the Jewish army, uh, and he uh, wrote around 95 AD, and it's because of him that we actually know so much about the ancient world. And he talked about Jesus in his books as well. He said that Jesus was a teacher, a worker of miracles, uh, that Jesus amassed for himself a great following, and that uh, those who followed him thought that he was the Messiah. Now, the reason this is big is because it shows us three things. One, it, it shows that non-Christians in the ancient world knew of Jesus. Two, that non-Christians reported similar things about Jesus's identity and followers. And three, that there are multiple sources from the first century that confirm the same details. And that's a big deal because the claim goes that we've got no evidence that Jesus was a real person. That's what Dawkins would say. But actually, we've, we've got more sources for Jesus than a whole host of other historical figures. Like, here's a thought experiment for you. The most popular person in first century Rome was Tiberius. He was the ruler. We don't have a single word from Tiberius. Not one utterance, not not one piece of writing from Tiberius. And we've got sources, not just the Gospels, not just Paul's letters, not just Peter's letters, not just James, the brother of Jesus, who are all Christian sources. We've got multiple sources, non-Christian ones, that testify to the fact that he was real and that the details we have about the broad contours of his life are reliable. That's actually a huge deal. You can appreciate that fact. It is significant. One, non-Christian sources affirm the basic details of Jesus Life two, the Gospels claim to be telling the truth. That might sound really silly, but just think about it for a moment. If they claim to be a myth or made up story, then it wouldn't be worth wrestling with. I'll give you an analogy. Recently, I was finally convinced by some friends to watch the Star Wars series. And when those, there it is, come on. And you, you step into the cinema, And the credits roll, right? And the first thing you see is what? A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And what's that doing to your imagination the moment that you read it? It's telling you that this story isn't real. It was made up. It's for your entertainment, not for your life transformation. It's not about history, it's about fiction. But what do you read when you open the Gospels? Ben read for us before, Luke 1, verses 1 to 4, and Luke says this, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first, eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Do you see that? Verse 2. He says, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses. What's Luke saying? He's saying to his reader, I've done some research, I've checked the facts, I've interviewed those who were there, and I've got eyewitness testimony. And what's that eyewitness testimony? It's the entire gospel that Luke wrote. In other words, he's not making it up, he's not trying to come up with a comforting story just so we'd go through life with a sense of peace and wish (laughs) fulfilment. He's claiming to report history. And because he claims to report history, you can't ignore it, you can't do away with it, you can only accept it or reject it or follow where the evidence goes. Because of the claim, he claims to record history. Number three, archaeological findings have tended to confirm rather than cast doubt on the material claims of the Gospels. This is three of four, so stay with me here. For example, John's gospel talks about a a bathing spot in chapter nine, a bathing spot called the Pool of Siloam. And this might sound unremarkable and insignificant, but roll with me on this one. John talks about the Pool of Siloam um, in chapter nine. The story goes, there was a man born blind from birth and Jesus meets him and heals him and he heals him. You you might know this story. He heals him by (laughs) spitting in the mud grabbing the mud, this is just not the miracle I'd want Jesus to do for me, but grabbing the mud and then pasting it on the eyes of the blind man, and the blind man gets healed, and then Jesus says to him, now go wash in the pool of Siloam, which in Aramaic I think means sent. Now for for centuries, and particularly since the 18th century, scholars thought that this was a made-up place in John's gospel. They thought that it had some symbolic function, that John was just making up a story to make a larger theological point about how Jesus is a healer and all that kind of thing. Uh, But in 2004, in June, some workers in the old city of Jerusalem, they were digging around, and they stumbled uh, across a sewage pipe. And as they dug, they followed this pipe along, and that pipe led to a pool. And what they discovered about this pool, it's a freshwater reservoir. It would have been a major gathering place for ancient Jews um, who'd been making pilgrimages to the city. And the excavators, they've been able to date the pool to the first century, mostly because the coins that have been sort of embedded into the plaster uh, survive from sort of 70 to 40 BC, and some other coins survive from about 60 to 80 AD. In other words, it's a pool from the time of Jesus. Um, And the details that John gives in his gospel themselves match the kind of pool that they found. In other words, here's what archaeologists have sort of decided and found. That this is the pool of Siloam. That the pool that a lot of people thought John made up in his gospel itself has been found and recognized uh, when a whole host of people were previously skeptical of it. Now, why do I say this? I say this because it adds to the sense that the Gospels are not set in this like mythical middle earth, they're set in ancient Middle East. That archeology span tends to confirm rather than deny the details, the seemingly insignificant details that the Gospels record as they tell the life of Jesus. So that just should dial up the confidence you have when you go to the Gospels a bit. Just, just dial it up a touch. And lastly, the Gospels are just too embarrassing to be made up. One of the, one of the criteria that historians use when they're evaluating ancient texts uh, is the criterion of embarrassment. And the theory is this, that for any record where the story featured is embarrassing for the writer, the account is more likely reliable. For any record where the account is more embarrassing for the writer, the account is less likely made up to make them look good and more likely reliable. What does this mean? It means that if you're an early follower of Jesus and you're writing a document which you hoped would span the Roman Empire and introduce people to, to who the person that you now called king, you'd expect it, if you were making it up, you'd, you'd want to exclude embarrassing details. You'd probably want to ensure that the document you write, it describes its characters in a respectable manner. And so here's the question what do you find when you open the gospels? The other week we looked at the story of Joseph and Mary and the virgin birth. Think of that story, Matthew's gospel. Joseph, he finds out that his fiance is pregnant with a baby he didn't technically help create. He wanted to divorce her, and so the story of the savior of the world it begins with a confused husband who thinks that his wife cheated on him. It's a bit embarrassing. Or what do you find out about the disciples? Think of one of the lead disciples, Peter. Peter's just got this talent for putting his foot in it. Story after story in the Gospels is Peter just failing to understand what the kingdom of God is like, or failing to understand that the mission that Jesus has for him, or trying to set up a tent in a particular part of Mark's Gospel, and he denies Jesus at his arrest and deserts Jesus at his crucifixion. And one of the lead disciples becomes one of the most unreliable characters in the story of Jesus. It's embarrassing. Or think about the resurrection of Jesus. In all four gospel accounts, the first characters who are said to be the first of the tomb are women. And that might not sound crazy to us as moderns, but in the ancient world, it was a big deal. Because for Jews and for an ancient Greco-Roman context, uh, the testimony of women was not valued in the court of law. And so here you've got a story four Gospels, all saying that the women were the first at the tomb, that they became the first, you know, witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And if you were making it up, you wouldn't make that claim. You'd say it was men at the tomb, unless, unless you're just recording what happened. There's a whole host of embarrassing facts that mark the story. You've got an awkward birth story, you've got a poor picture of Jesus' disciples, and you've got an astounding claim that women were the first to the tomb. So let's just say that you were tasked with fabricating a story to start a world religion. Are these the details you'd include? Would that help your case? And here's what historians say. No. It only makes sense to think that they were probably just recording history as it stood. It only makes sense to think that they were recording history as it stood. So here's the point that scholars have made. It's too embarrassing to be made up. Four little reasons, among a whole host of other ones that I'd love to be able to have time to provide, that can give us confidence that the story of Jesus we find in the gospels is reliable. And don't take my word for it, here's John Dixon. He's a visiting academic at the Faculty of Classics in Oxford University. He teaches a course On the historical Jesus at Sydney University. And he said this. He said, History, it demonstrates that the story at the heart of the Gospels is neither a myth nor a fraud, but a broadly credible account of a short first century life. In other words, if you're a Christian here today, and the claim of Richard Dawkins makes you nervous because it brings into question the reliability of the center of your faith, here's what I want to say to you we've actually got a whole host of evidence to point the opposite direction, that Jesus is who he said he was, that the accounts that we have of him in the Gospels are themselves reliable. And if you're not a Christian here today, and this has been a question that's like robbed your imagination and plagued your mind, and you haven't, been, you haven't felt free to entertain the, the possibility of Christianity because you're like, well, there's just no evidence for it. Here's what I'd say to you. There is... Christianity is not a blind leap in the dark away from the evidence, away from the facts that we know from history. Christianity is a leap through those facts into the relational mystery of knowing God personally. That's the Christian invitation. And so you don't have any reason to hold yourself back. What are some implications from these four facts? Implication one would be this: it means you have to make a decision about this guy named Jesus. You have to make a decision about this guy. See, a lot of people think that the Christian story, it's just wishful thinking that it's pie in the sky when you die and there's no sense in which it could be true. But this experiment, this thought experiment we've been on for the last 20 minutes, it proves the opposite. Uh, You don't have to wrestle with a religion that doesn't claim to be true, but if it does, you really do have to wrestle with it. Um, The gospel writers themselves, they claim that when God turned up he put on flesh in history, which means God made himself vulnerable to our inquiry. That's a big thing. And so you can't You can't can't ignore it for so long. You can accept the claims of Jesus. You can reject the claims of Jesus. You can take time to consider them, but you can't ignore them. Not when the claims are so big. C.S. Lewis, he does a great job at articulating the stakes of this sort of thought experiment. In his book, Mere Christianity, Towards the End, he, he says this. He says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. People have called this the great trilemma. Jesus was either a liar, he was either a lunatic, or he was the Lord of heaven and earth. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or who's the Lord of heaven and earth? And so here's the question. Who do you say that Jesus is? You have to make a decision, and that decision will change your life. In the same way that God changed history in a broad sense, God can change your life in a personal sense. You have to make a decision. And number two, I I don't have this in my notes, and so... I want to invite the band up, because if I start speaking too long, they can just jump into worship and cut me off. Um, So, Ben, why don't you just come up behind me here? And um, I think the thing that really strikes me about this, this topic is that there's two ways to know something. You can have knowledge of something, and you can have relational knowledge with something. I'll give you an example. Before I met my wife, uh, someone told me a bunch of facts about her. and I remember thinking, that sounds awesome. She sounds real. Tick. <laughs> and she sounds amazing. And I had all this knowledge of her and if you were to ask me questions like, Alex, can you tell me about Kath, I'd be able to say, well, I know she's got blonde hair. I, I know that she, um, I won't go into too much detail, but yeah, meet my wife, she's great. But I tell you all these facts about her. But then if you were to say, hey, how can I know Kath? Well, I'd stop telling you facts about it and I'd just introduce you to it. And let me tell you, the difference between hearing facts about Kath and then meeting Kath, see you later, Birkenstock. <laughs> they're very different experiences. One is knowledge of, one is intimacy with, one is facts about, And and one is experience with. One is, you know, cerebral ideas. And the other is encounter. And I gotta tell you, meeting Kath made all the facts about her true, but a shadow of the kind of encounter I got to have. And I'm so mindful that as I talk about the truth of Christianity and knowledge of Jesus and the historic reliability of the Christmas story, you could be sitting here thinking, oh, that's nice. Oh, that's true. Oh, that sounds intellectually entertaining. Oh, we can know a lot of things about Jesus. But here's the invitation. It's not to decide what you think about Jesus only. It's to step through that decision into encounter with Him. We're not just talking about knowledge of. We're talking about relationship with. And so the question I've got for you this afternoon is, have you made a decision? And have you stepped through that decision into relationship with God Himself? Because you want to know why Jesus came? Not just that we'd have right knowledge of God, so we'd sort of entertain our philosophical minds. It's that He'd rescue us and reconcile us to himself. So the invitation is not here, it is a bunch of knowledge of God. The invitation is, do you know him relationally and personally this afternoon? And that's on the table for each one of us, whether you've been a Christian for decades, or whether you've walked into this room this afternoon, you're like, maybe I'll give this church thing a go. And so can I ask you to stand? And I'd just love to pray for us. And if you find yourself as someone who just wants to encounter God afresh this afternoon, I just invite you to open your hands right in front of you. And if you're someone who doesn't know Jesus and you'd like to, again, I'd invite you to open your hands and, and just be open to the possibility that God could encounter you right now by His Spirit. This is what God does. This is who God is. God is not just a person from history. He's the very presence of the living God right now. And so open your hands and be open to the possibility that He could meet you where you're and let me pray. God, thank you that you are the living God, that you're not distant and far off, you're not just an idea we can entertain, but you, Father, are real. You're living and active, you're alive and well, and you, by your Spirit, want to encounter your people right now. And so I just ask, Holy Spirit, come. Lord and fall fresh among us we don't just want to know about you God we want to know you intimately and personally for it's in Jesus name we pray